You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Rami Abraham. Happy Monday, everyone, or happy whatever day it is that you're listening to this episode. This is episode two, and the title is Conversations with Dr. Saskia Popescu, COVID-19, a marathon, not a race. Dr. Saskia Popescu is um, she's an infectious disease epidemiologist and infection prevent- preventionist. And in this episode, I got a, an amazing opportunity to uh, talk to her about uh, zoonotic diseases, COVID-19, um, its impact on healthcare, and we just discussed so much. Um, it's a very exciting episode, and she also answered your questions um, about COVID-19 towards the end of the discussion. So um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know what you think. Uh, feel free to send an email, mondayscience2020 at gmail.com. Enjoy. Okay, so um, today on the podcast, we have Dr. Saskia, Saskia Popesco, um, and we're going to be talking about uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. And so obviously, uh, Dr. Popesco, Saskia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for connecting uh, with us today. Um, (laughs) I think the best starting point would be if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I am an infectious disease epidemiologist and infection preventionist with a focus on healthcare response to biological events. So basically, this means that I do epidemiology for infectious diseases in hospitals and that Really, my goal is to help prevent the spread of infectious diseases during healthcare, whether it's to patients or clinical staff or even visitors. And then I also help hospitals prepare for and respond to biological events, whether that be something like influenza or Ebola or even COVID-19. Yeah, amazing. Uh, So yeah, so you'll be very busy at this time. Uh, (laughs) It's prime time for you. Um, So we're going to get straight in, stuck in. I have many questions, so as I said, some you know that I've sort of put together, but we also have a lot of listener questions that we'll talk through at the end. So to start us off, um, if you could just explain and just give an overview of what uh, zoonotic diseases are. Zoonotic diseases or zoonoses are those kinds of diseases that can spread between animals and people, and Ebola would be a good example of that. Yeah. So sometimes we have animals that carry these microorganisms that can cause disease in humans. And then we have an event occurs and we call that a spillover. And that basically means that that pathogen moves from one species to another and often results in an outbreak. So an example of this would be like MERS COV, which is MERS coronavirus or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Yeah. And this is another coronavirus. And we've actually found while we're still learning about MERS that there is some sporadic transmission from a certain type of camel and that that spillover event happens with some humans and then it's not very often but when it does (laughs) um if that you know then it can have human to human transmission for those that live in close contact with each other or in healthcare settings so you know there's that spillover event between animal and human and then the humans can transmit it between each other yeah that's fantastic i didn't actually know about the connection of mers with camel that's very interesting um and also a bit scary <laughs> to some extent yeah it's it's really interesting if you ever look up zoonotic outbreaks um it's pretty fascinating there's 
I go to an annual conference about um, infectious disease events in you know, the area that I live in. Okay. And without fail, every single time there is an outbreak related to bearded dragons, the, oh. the little lizards that people keep oh, as pets. Oh, wow. I, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but that's, I mean, but it's a prime example of how easy it is for certain diseases and certain animals, especially when in close contact with humans, to spread disease between each other. Yeah, I mean, I remember just going a little bit off track, but I remember because I'm a pharmacist and um, when I was studying for my PhD was the swine flu outbreak. Oh, yeah. Um, it was just, you know, I, and I, I guess there's also that thing of what year was that? Many years ago. But compared to how information is, you know, the amount of information is available and how information spreads in terms of social media. Um, just coming to the, I mean, swine flu wasn't as obviously contagious as um, as Corona is but even at the time it was like wow okay so from the pig human what's going on <laughs> yeah i mean it's actually you know i think something like 70 percent of um emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic diseases mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so there's a lot of you know that's a huge rabbit hole but there's a lot of really interesting information in terms of how uh, you know our infringement on um land and, and, and the environment really impacts disease transmission. So there's something called One Health. And that basically yeah. means, you know, human, animal and environmental health are all inherently linked. And I think, you know, when we look at something like COVID-19 or MERS, um, yeah. you know, it really pushes that notion of how yeah. our, you know, we're all, we're all in this together. Yes, no, no. And it's a valid point. And, you know, if we had more time, I'd love to go into especially the environmental aspect of it all. Um, you know, just discussing that a bit more. Um, but actually, good thing you mentioned uh, COVID-19 because, you know, hot topic at the moment, we're living through a pandemic, not to sound so dramatic, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, what is COVID-19? And um, what, from what we know, uh, what is the virus origin? Yeah, so COVID-19 is basically the disease caused by the coronavirus SARS-CoV-2. And, you know, I think that's kind of confusing. So people say COVID-19, but they're really meaning to say, you know, it's the illness, the disease that the virus causes. Now, this is a novel disease mm -hmm. and it's one of, a, you know, the coronaviruses, which is a large family that tends to cause illness in humans. Mm -hmm. um, and some animals, there are some coronaviruses that only impact animals and some that only impact humans or just, you know, a little bit of animal zoonotic transmission right there. But what we do know about coronaviruses is that there's you know, definite uh, zoonotic component to them. We have several strains, and then there are more strains like MERS, SARS, and COVID-19, or SARS-CoV-2, where we understand that there was a zoonotic component to it, but they have sustained human-to-human -human transmission. And I think what is so easy to forget about um, COVID-19 and just coronaviruses in general is that there are a few strains that are just in normal transmission throughout flu season. Right. So, um, you know, they're, they're relatively common. Um, and I think, you know, people don't realize that or forget that coronaviruses, there's a lot of them and some of them are, are pretty endemic. Mm. And, and, and you're right, actually, because even as you're saying that, I didn't know that the coronavirus or a the coronavirus family was also being involved you know being in the atmosphere in, in our in our seasonal flu so that's quite interesting um but you touched on an interesting point about uh you know animals also uh you know they can be infected by coronavirus i think it was in was it the bronx zoo where they found that uh, um somebody the zookeeper potentially or zookeepers had infected 
um, I think it was a tiger or something with uh, COVID-19. So what's that, what does that mean? And, you know, do you have any insight on why that could happen? And is there a likely, because I think in the news at some point, they were saying that, oh, cats or dogs or pets, mm-hmm. I think it was cats or dogs, one or the other, you correct me if I'm wrong, um, they weren't able to contract coronavirus from humans but then you have this you know tigers are big cats <laughs> um <laughs> i'm a cat i'm a cat person sorry so i'm trying not to get that deep into this very professional interview but <laughs> you myself um but yeah you know do you have any insight on that because that i found that quite interesting but it's it's also a little bit worrying to some extent yeah. if, that, if you know that's now how the the virus is you know evolving i guess Yeah, so there's a couple of pieces to this. So, I mean, we are studying the likely origin of of SARS-CoV-2 and Mm -hmm. it's expected to be a zoonotic one. And, uh, you know, the outbreak is a result of a spillover event. But that being said, we're still learning so much about how the zoonotic pathways work. You know, the natural reservoirs, how potential transmission can occur from humans to animals. um, And it's really not clear or, um, you know, we're just not there yet. So I think definitely we're understanding that there is a a transmission dynamic between people who especially live in close quarters with cats because I think there were those two cats that were identified in New York and they found that their owners had COVID-19 so I I definitely think there's something to be said there but it's it's so early to really understand what that looks like and what that that um, transmission really means and I know there's been more discussion recently about dogs so Mm. You know, I don't I don't think we're there yet in terms of, you know, if we if you have a cat and you get COVID-19, how likely are you to give it to your cat? And then if your cat has it, do they act as a transmission mechanism or are they a reservoir? You know, what does that look like? So unfortunately, it's it's really early to tell. And I one thing I'm trying to be very cautious of is there's so much information floating around. And the last thing we want to do is, you know, add to misinformation or disinformation. So. But I do think it's a really fascinating dynamic to this and yeah. understanding how um, um, comfort animals or what are they, you know, um, trying to, companion. yeah, companion animals. Yes. There we go. <laughs> how they I'm way too invested. I don't even have cats, by the way, but I'm way too invested. <laughs> I'm like oh yeah no I mean I'm a, I'm a dog person and you know I think that's a really fascinating thing because I actually was speaking to our vet about it he's like well mm-hmm. you know the only coronaviruses we deal with actually just cause diarrheal illness in dogs but mm-hmm. as we learn about the transmission dynamics with SARS-CoV-2 it'll be interesting to see if our companion animals that we live in close quarters with you know many of us um you know, like give our dogs kisses or let them lick our yeah. faces and yeah. stuff. So all of that is, you know, is, is going to be a really interesting component to this. So I'm curious to see as this pandemic progresses and as we get more research on it, how um, how the role of companion animals plays into this in terms of are we are we giving it to them and what does that look like? Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And, and you know, I totally echo uh, what you said around, you know, there's so much information out there on coronavirus and whether it's in memes whether it's you know there's just so much and and it is really important um to be able to provide accurate information um in the space so that you're not you know misinformation is is the cause of other dynamics and other issues and it can be cause of fear in in people so it's really important and I'm I'm really big on that which is one of the reasons that I'm very excited to have you on the show because um, I've had a lot of people, you know, professionally and and also, you know, personally, like my friends and family, ask about 
various things to do with, you know, coronavirus. Um, and, you know, when I was deciding to set up the podcast, I wanted to make sure that I had reputable people come on the show. So it's my other way of saying thank you again. <laughs> yeah, fun. I mean, and you know what, it's such a big problem. I spend so much time when I'm working with my healthcare providers, mm. um, combating that. And I think yeah. that's a really frustrating dynamic to this pandemic yes. that maybe people don't realize is that, um, you know, there's there's your Facebook posts that maybe like your crazy aunt or someone you went to high school <laughs> with is posting. But unfortunately, some people do really listen to that. And yes. some of those people are actually in very critical roles yeah. and pandemic response. And, you know, you want them to have the best information that so that they can be safe. But also, I think it just adds so much unnecessary fear. So I, I appreciate your dedication to wanting oh, to spread the right information. Because yeah, um, it's, it's a huge problem. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, so the next question I have, and I, I have this written down, and even as I'm looking at the question, it looks very complex to me. But I, what I wanted to know is, Okay, I'll read out what I wrote out and let's then you can decipher the clarity because I was saying, what is, the, what is the relationship between MERS, so Middle East Respiratory Syndrome related coronavirus, SARS, uh, Severe Acute Respiratory uh, Syndrome and COVID-19 coronavirus disease? Is so the, I, they're, all, they're all just members. <laughs> of the coronaviridae family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're all just different kinds. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, MERS and SARS, we've, MERS we still see outbreaks with in terms of most of them, most of them are in the UAE. SARS we haven't seen cases of since 2003, which is good. And then, you know, COVID-19 is just, or SARS-CoV-2 is just a new, a new member of the coronaviridae family. Okay, that's good to know because, you know, when I, I think it was in the early bout of information, um, the conversation was saying, you know, yes, there's, you know, COVID-19 and then you would hear SARS and MERS, but not understanding in what context it's in. So it's, that's a very, you know, that's very uh, good to know. So now back to um, COVID-19, should I be calling it COVID-19 now or should I say coronavirus or... I like the Rona. I think that came from America. <laughs> My personal favorite. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's such a hard part because if we're talking about the virus, you yeah. know, before someone is sick, it really should be SARS-CoV-2. But that yeah. being said, I mean, I still find that people don't really know or forget that that causes COVID-19. So in most cases, um, I just refer to it as COVID-19. Okay, we'll say COVID-19. We won't go for the Rona. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so COVID-19, how is it spread now? And, and I'm asking this, and if you could cover the sort of the general, yeah, how is it spread, but also the surfaces aspect as well, if there's any insight into that. Yeah. So um, COVID-19, similar, and this is why you would see all those comparisons early on to MERS and SARS, um, is, a, is a respiratory pathogen, right? It's a, it's a virus that causes respiratory illness. So we have some predominantly you know, the, the way it's spread is predominantly through respiratory droplets and secretions. So think of your cough, your sneeze. Um, in some cases, you know, talking if the person really, you know, has a high viral load. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have a very um, animated talker. <laughs> um, so aerosolization. Well, yeah. and you know, it's interesting because like some people, you know, that whole saying, say it, don't spray it. Yeah. <laughs> it really, you know, it really has a good point here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, we are finding that some people, there's a potential if you're face-to-face, -face, you know, close mm -hmm. quarters and talking and things like that. So 
so that's one piece to it. The second would be aerosol generating procedures. And these are very unique to a hospital or a medical setting. And, you know, this is where you get a lot of those conversations about airborne transmission. And I think it's so important to know when we're talking about airborne transmission, we're talking about really small part of viral particles. Think of like yeah. measles or tuberculosis or chickenpox, yeah. um, something that is inherently airborne transmission. And, you know, we're not really seeing that with COVID-19. It's really mostly spread person to person through that droplet spread. And I always like to remind people too, when they see those studies that focus on aerosolization, it's really mimicking what we're doing in hospitals in terms of um, intubating a patient or using nebulizer treatments that are artificially aerosolizing those droplets, those respiratory yeah. droplets. <clears throat> so that's one piece. And that's why healthcare workers, when they're doing those, require a little bit more protection. Yes. And then the next, the next piece to this transmission would be dirty hands or surfaces. So my example is always, because, you know, humans, we love touching our faces. <laughs> we, you know, touch our face or our, our mouth, um, you know, your nose, your mouth, your, you cough into it or whatever that might be. And then you go and touch a doorknob or your cell phone or your computer or something like that. So you've just now contaminated those surfaces or objects. And then if somebody else comes along, touches those and then touches their mouth or their nose or their eyes, that's how we have that environmental transmission through fomites. Yeah. And um, I think that's a, that's a piece that people may not realize is really important when it comes to respiratory infections, especially since we focus so much on masks and, and respiratory droplets. Mm. But we know that, and especially imagine living in a household and one of you is sick, consider how many, like how much contamination would occur in your kitchen and living room and stuff. Yeah. So that's really how it's spread. Um, you know, and, and I think this kind of situation just really amplifies how critical it is to wash your hands and not touch your face, <laughs> you know, so, things like that. I have a confession. As you were talking, my hands were on my face. And, like, well, we do it. It's, I mean, it's constant. I, yeah. And the anxiety I got, I just went to reach and get some alcohol gel because it would be weird if <laughs> in the middle of the podcast, you hear me washing my hands. But yeah. I mean, it, it's so true though. We, yeah. we touch our, our faces constantly. And I think people may not even realize how frequently they do it. So, you know, I had a friend who was like, here's what I want you to do. Put a mirror behind, you know, if you're at your desk, put a mirror in front of you. And throughout the, an hour even, count how many times you're touching your face because you will be baffled by it. That's interesting. That would be quite good because you're right. It's probably, it's, you know, subconsciously, you don't even realize you're doing it. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I, might, I might do that as my objective for next week because I, yeah, as I said, as you were talking just now, I was like, my hands are on my face. I had a bit of a mini panic attack, which I probably shouldn't even be sharing right now. Um, so um, giving that insight with, you know, how it's spread, why is it spreading so quickly? Um, I think a lot of this is, you know, and there's so many factors to this. And again, again, we're still really learning about transmission dynamics. I think a lot of it is close quarter contact. So right. we know from reviewing some outbreaks that those people living in close quarters, you know, in households tend to be at high risk. So yeah. if you have prolonged close contact with someone, you know, there was an outbreak in a choir um, and, you know, you're face to face for a while, that's going to increase the risk because you're talking to each other, you're coughing, you're sneezing around each other. And for household contacts, you know, you have a lot of environmental then contamination. So mm -hmm. a lot of this is spread by just continued prolonged face-to-face -face contact. I think the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have really been using out in the community. You know, if you're 
face to face with, with someone for around 10 minutes, that's what they're considering an exposure. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if you're just thinking about, if you're just sitting and chatting with someone, there's, there's that risk for when you're, you know, talking, you're coughing or you're sneezing and things like that. So that really comes into play with social distancing, which is not just about being, you know, six feet apart, but also avoiding large groups of people. I, you know, I too often see like 12 people wanting to get together. So they just sit mm-hmm. six feet apart wow. <laughs> and social distancing. Social distancing is yes, the physical distance, but also avoiding, you know, larger groups of people. So that's really how we're seeing transmission. Um, Hospital transmission has occurred, you know, definitely with healthcare workers as personal protective equipment really comes into play. But, you know, the last outbreak I really looked at, it was really emphasizing how much of a role household transmission had, you know, those close contacts. And yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? It's not surprising. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when people get really stressed out about the airborne transmission thing, I always remind them, you know, if things were airborne, we would see so many more cases, um, especially like in office buildings and in hospitals and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, hey, you know, stay home if you're sick. And, um, you know, it's, it's those respiratory droplets and then the contamination that can occur after they're expelled. Yes. Um that brings me because we were talking about the social distancing, physical distancing. So um, the flatten the curve concept, mm-hmm. uh, which we, we've heard so much about. So what is it? And is there actually, I mean, is there ever going to be a safe, quote unquote, safe number of cases that will be allowed in the population, um, allowing us to kind of return back to normality, quote unquote, normality of <laughs> life. So yeah, so the flattening the curve, what is it? And yeah, is there, is there a safe number? What are we working towards? Yeah. So flatten the curve is a term we have in epidemiology where we look at the epi curve, which has daily cases and then the highest part in that peak. So that highest, that's the highest number of cases. If you right. think about it kind of like, um, <clears throat> like a roller coaster. So that's really a surge. Now, you know, trying to lessen that can be challenging because we want to see a more gentle curve. So if, you know, you want something that's maybe not so high of a roller coaster. (laughs) And that's really because in most cases you have, you know, a line, if you think about it with, you have healthcare and public health capacity. And the concern is always keeping that, that steep, that spike, the highest peak, under what our capacity is, because if we go above that, then you're going to overwhelm your system. So the whole goal, that line, you know, where we don't want the curve to go beyond, that's our capacity we want to stay under. So flattening the curve really means keeping that highest peak, that highest number of cases you're going to see on any given day mm-hmm. below the capacity of which we can respond in healthcare and in public health. And unfortunately, there's really no safe number. So, you know, I can't say 20 people is a safe number. It's really about decreasing transmission, um, having your R naught, which is how many cases, if I had it, how many other people I would give it to. And we really want to, the goal is always to keep the R naught below one, you know, as close to zero, obviously, as possible. But the, the guidance I always remind people of is, just because you've had a couple of days of decreasing transmission doesn't mean we're there yet. You really want to see that continued decreasing number of cases for yeah. at least 14 days, because 14 days is our incubation period, but ideally more than that. Yeah. And so that's quite interesting, actually, because I think some of the conversations I've been having with, um, so I think I'd even mentioned to you before that my background, I'm 
drug delivery, drug development, um, interested in global health, actually, but I'm focused on malaria and antimicrobial resistance. Probably need to have a separate So important right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so important. And, you know, we've got a, a, there's some pending projects, which I can't really go into too much right now. But, you know, looking at the co-infections with um, COVID-19 and, and what impact that has. And, you know, the it's just is a minefield. And obviously, I, I even saw an article where they were saying how um, COVID-19 could is highlighting the issues around antimicrobial resistance and, you know, what how that could all sort of come together and be a bit of a <laughs> another dynamic. Oh, for sure. I, and you know what? So antimicrobial resistance is is one of my favorite topics because not only is it really one health oriented, yes. but it represents such a massive problem. And I'm going to give um, Marin McKenna a shout out here because if you've ever um, want to read about it in a very, yeah. very um, easy to understand way, Big Chicken is her book and it's amazing, but she really actually just wrote an article about COVID-19 and how we're seeing there's a big concern that we're going to start to see spikes in antimicrobial resistance because yeah. it's so common to see yeah. prophylactic antibiotic usage in intensive care units for these really yeah. sick patients. Yes. And yeah, I mean, so drug delivery, AMR, you're going to be busy. I know. <laughs> like really. And, you know, people don't realize that, though, that there's these trickle down effects when yes. we have these pandemics that yeah. hit things we might not even realize. And antimicrobial resistance is definitely one of them. It really, really is. Um, and, and so, you know, the, going to your point of the, there's no real safe number, because this, this was something that I've been wondering, um, just sort of looking at the history of other infections and, you know, even just looking at SARS. And I I guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing if corona is so, um, COVID-19 is so infectious, maybe, I, I, and this is not to put you on the spot, I'm just, this, this is me theorizing, <laughs> um, is, I guess, because it's so infectious, is there, there could be this thing of, well, do we aim for zero, you know, what's acceptable, but maybe when uh, treatments and other things come into play um, that that you know that would help things but going back to this whole flattening the curve how long could a quarantine last based on models and predictions because we're hearing all the time you know uh, this model is being used this prediction but can we truly predict like how long a quarantine or social distancing um exodus not an exercise but you know a moment should yeah last? so you know, it's so tough and because it, it really yeah. truly depends. Um, you know, models are forecasts. They're not concrete predictions and they yeah. change frequently, right? Because they have yeah. to account for new data and the impact of control measures. So I always like to remind people that this is a marathon, not a sprint. We are building yeah. the bridge as we cross it. <laughs> yes. And um, I think people need that reminder because I do think people are hoping that, oh, it'll be fine. Three months, we're done. We'll be back to normal. And that's, yeah. a, valid, that's a, a perfect quote. Marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> you know, and it, this is going to require incremental, a, a very slow relaxation of restrictions to avoid more spikes and surges. And I think the, the hardest thing is um, communicating unknowns. Yes. I, you know, people really want a very straightforward black or white answer. And I am very weary of people mm -hmm. that give those because the mm -hmm. truth is, um, you know, especially when it comes to when is this going to be over, which is a question so many of us have been wondering. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be different for everybody. It really, truly will. And, you know, we're still not even sure if SARS-CoV-2 will be an endemic disease. You know, is this something that's going to, we're going to be able to 
stamp down, you know, stamp out and it'll be like SARS where we don't see it again? Or is it going to be like MERS where we have sporadic outbreaks or is it going to be seasonal? I mean, we just don't know yet. So I think the biggest piece right now is really about containment and, you know, mitigation just in terms of let's try and get these numbers down so we can get our healthcare and our public health services. Um, so, you know, that are so stressed right now, we can get them back to their pre COVID level so that they can really respond to each case, um, you know, in in a more, um, or less stressful manner. But so I think, you know, the hard part is I don't know when it's going to end. Um, so much of it depends on what we're doing right now. So as things open up, I always tell people, you know, it's not binary, right? It's not open or close. It's we're going to open things very slowly, hopefully, and slowly, you know, relax those restrictions. But if everybody just rushes out, then we're going to see those spikes. We're going to see those surges. So you still need to be careful. You should still try and stay home as, you know, as much as you can um, to help kind of avoid that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, And that's, it's actually, I think we need more people to just highlight everything that you've just said um, to the general public, just so that I think that fact or that level of communication about the reality of the situation would actually probably calm people down so they know they're in it for the long haul. Um, Because you're you're finding a lot of people trying to hold themselves, you know, to say, okay, by June, everything will be back to normal. And then you're seeing that, oh, the lockdown's been extended. You know, we still need to do this. We still need to do that. And, you know, the impact that could have on people's mental health is is going to be. Oh, yeah, it's significant. Mental health right now is a really huge aspect um, that we, I know, you know, that's why I think science communication is so important right now. And why I get so frustrated with people that are so certain and when things will be over, because it's, it's just not, you know, we, we need to be honest with people so that they can set realistic expectations. I agree. Um, you talked about our healthcare system and, 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 you know, the, the strain, uh, what are the challenges that you feel hospitals are facing right now? Oof. (laughs) (laughs) I know that was, so I, I try to add, ask that question very lightly, but it's a very <laughs> loaded question. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many. I think, you know, one is obviously we know about PPE or personal protective equipment. There's been yeah. strains globally, which means that we are having to use emergent methods like reuse of masks or mm-hmm. disinfection of masks to extend their use. That's a huge piece. Um, There is, of course, you know, you see what's happening or what happened in New York. It's still pretty bad there. And in general, our healthcare systems are very overwhelmed. You know, I've seen some stuff of what's going on in the UK with NHS. You know, they're very overwhelmed and stressed. I I think most places are because, you know, this is a novel situation and we have supply chain problems with PPE and then others like disinfecting wipes and hand sanitizer and you know, other concerns in terms of we have, we have a capacity and in a, you know, a larger capacity building that we can do, but unfortunately we're just overwhelmed. You know, we're starting to see larger spikes in some of the other parts of the country in the U S and the healthcare system is feeling it. You know, a lot of these patients are critically ill. They require intensive care units. And that is a very, um, resource and personnel intensive area, meaning, you know, you have a lot of high, high acuity, very sick patients that require a lot of care. And that can be very stressful, very overwhelming. And it's, it's hard, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I think everyone is just kind of exhausted at this point. Yeah, agreed. 
Um, and so I should have probably asked this more so when you were talking about how the disease spreads, but how do you feel people can protect themselves? Is there any, you know, any advice or anything like that? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because we focus so much on what we're doing in healthcare, but you know, what can people do at home? And I think, you know, the hardest piece I find is that since this is a novel situation, people, people want a novel approach. And that's why that big emphasis on masks happens. And, yeah. you know, I like to really reiterate the guidance on mask usage is really about, are you in an area where social distancing isn't possible? Like, are you on the tube with a bunch of people? Yeah. Um, you know, things like that. But so much of what you can do is really, tr honestly, do try to stay home. Try to minimize your contact with other people, um, you know, unless required. And wash your hands, <laughs> you know, <laughs> avoiding touching your face. Yeah. Surface disinfection goes a long ways. You know, those pieces are really important. So they sound like not enough because this is such a scary situation. But of those course. are the tried and true methods. And, you know, I, you know, I, I want people to feel comfortable doing them. So the thing I always, you know, people are like, well, we should be wearing masks and gloves. And I'm like, okay, well, why don't you get hand hygiene and not touching your face right first? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll move on to the next ones. Because the yes. truth is, I see yes. so many people in improperly wearing masks, definitely gloves. I've seen so much oh. poor glove use. Oh. And it's oh. horrible. I don't think people realize that your gloves are so easily contaminated, just like your hands, but they get a false sense of security. So like they're wearing one pair of gloves for hours and yeah, it, it really just frustrates me. So I, you know, I encourage people to focus, you know, get the, get the basics down because it sounds easy, but it's really a lot harder than you realize to not touch your yeah. face and to wash your hands as frequently as you should. And then you know, if you're going to be wearing masks out, really learn how to wear them properly, how to, you know, not cross contaminate, how, um, how to put them on, take them off appropriately, how to store them appropriately, those kinds of things. Yeah, that's so interesting. So the, the two, the gloves, the, the, the way I've seen people wear gloves, oh, gosh. using their phones with the gloves, and obviously, like, you know, working in the lab, you use gloves, and you know how, because you get that, as you rightfully said, that false sense of security that, oh, I've got gloves on, so everything's fine, it's safe. But if you're using the same gloves that you're touching all the surfaces with on your using to, you know, touch your phone and all this stuff, it's a, it's a mess. I actually um, I had to go to the petrol station and the um, worker at the petrol station, he had gloves on and wanted to scan my like I need you know you know you have your loyalty card or whatever and he was like oh can you pass me your phone I was like no <laughs> I had a bit of a panic attack and I was like no I'm not giving you my my phone like, oh, no, no, I've got gloves on and I was like yes that you've been touching everything with you know so it was yeah, interesting. yeah. um no it's, it's so true sorry. And I was going to say the interesting thing also with masks is I I started recently using the mask and using it properly I think also ranges with learning how to breathe with them because I feel so yeah. suffocated using the mask and my friend was um he actually works in intensive care he's a, a, a consultant pharmacist and he was saying okay think of it as how, when you're out of breath for doing a workout, how do you usually breathe? I was like, I don't know, I'm grasping for air. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah. and that's the thing is too, I always remind people, you know, don't mask shame people who aren't wearing masks because mm. they might have respiratory issues like asthma right. or something that they right. can't wear masks. And, right. you know, I think that's why we all have to do our part too. Yeah. Um, so I'm, the next part that I want to talk about and 
you know, I'm going to try and not impart too much of my, um, this is more academic drama <laughs> there. But um, so when all of this started happening in true academic and scientific fashion, I, you know, went on to, I don't know if I can even say the platform, but, you know, I went on to one of our, you know, um, uh, what's it called, journal, you know, platforms. And I was looking for um, papers on just like preparedness for pandemic research. Mm. And I found there's a whole, you know, so much information and so much research that's been going on for years about pandemics, pandemic preparedness. But then it felt that when this happened, there was nobody was prepared. Um, and so I guess the, the next few questions I just want to talk about is going back to modeling. Mm. Um, so modeling in an outbreak what are the limitations uh, with the models that are used? How far can they be trusted? I'm going to say all the questions and then we can go into it. Um, <laughs> and then the next part really is about kind of like what does biopreparedness look like for private and nationally funded healthcare systems? And so, yeah, like why? Yeah, just, yeah, what I've said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, regarding research on pandemics. So, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the hard part is, I mean, I was trained to, to respond to a pandemic, right? Yeah. So, I mean, in theory, this should be like my 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 jam. Like what, right. you know, we're, we're all like, we've trained for this our whole lives. Yes. But the truth is that working in it, living in it is so vastly different, right? Like anything you study in school and then you actually live it, you're just like, oh, wow, this is totally different. Yes. Um, yes. But, you know, I think there's some things that we just really didn't anticipate for. I know in the US, and I'm not going to speak for the UK, leadership okay. <laughs> has definitely been a challenge. Um, and, you know, at, at some level, you expect your um, your national leadership to be transparent or right. respond a certain way yeah. or take it a little bit more seriously earlier on. You know, there's yeah. a, a lot of pieces in that. Yes. Um, so I think that was a huge aspect because, you know, globally, none of us really invest in preparedness mm -hmm. through healthcare and public health like we should. I mean, we, you know, we can, we can rank all we want. The U.S., you know, the U.K., Europe, you know, we've, we all do better than a lot of other countries. But that being said, we need to be doing better. So unfortunately, when we're looking at how we've responded to COVID-19, I think a lot of this comes down to a disjointed approach, right? You know, public health yeah. and healthcare response are often very limited because they don't get sustained high volumes of investment unless there's an emergency, right? We throw a ton of money at the problem. And then when that problem is gone, we pull back on some of that resourcing. Yeah. So we see that with hospital response and public health. You know, I mean, we overwhelmingly don't fund public health, especially in the U.S. like we should. <laughs> and um, so, you know, that's a big, a big challenge. And also, each outbreak is so unique, even if it's the same disease. You know, the, yeah. the Ebola outbreak we saw in 2014 in um, Liberia and Sierra Leone was vastly different than the outbreak we saw in the DRC, um, yeah. you know, in 2019. So this is this is kind of a perfect storm, at least in the U.S., for sure, in terms of we had a very slow response for our administration. Yeah. Delays in testing were huge. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and for me, I mean, working in healthcare it hit in the middle of a respiratory virus season, meaning it was already kind of a severe flu season. So yeah. you, you know, so we're already busy. You throw in personal protective equipment challenges. You know, I think the testing dynamic has really been just mind numbing because mm -hmm. throughout all of the exercises I've been involved in and all of the tabletop exercises, you know, and every, every simulation 
we have never anticipated challenges with testing. We've always assumed that we would have that capability. That wouldn't even be. So I think that's a huge piece to this. Um, and yeah, sorry, it's, it's, sorry to, to cut you, which is I know really, really bad. But the, the, that's a very interesting point, actually, because not having not anticipating um, the te the testing challenge has that. Do you think that has maybe influenced the or influence the limitations I'm guessing with potentially mod like the modeling um does that is there any not I don't know if there's a direct correlation but if you can't test enough to get enough data then oh, that sure. really means that you're, yeah your model is yeah. going to be hard to put in the necessary data into the model for sure so I mean models you know and I, I'm not an infectious disease modeler there are some amazing ones out there that can speak to this better than I can but yeah. um you know they are they're really over a certain amount of variables, right? And they yeah. make some assumptions. So, you know, that's why they're utilized as a forecasting resource, not a crystal ball, but they, their capabilities, of course, are only as good as the data that they have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's the challenge too, is, you know, I see them as a really helpful support for continued readiness and preparedness. You know, I, I look to the modeling experts with so much appreciation because yes. I can't even imagine having to build something based off of, data you know is imperfect and that's yes. constantly changing yes. and people yeah. people are in some ways misusing you know i see a lot of people um looking at models online and saying well it says it says our peak is going to be on this date oh. so and i'm like no, no 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 that's not how you should be using oh, it <laughs> yeah so you know and i think that's really interesting so I, I really encourage people to, when they look at models, ask questions, you know, what, yeah. what data are they using? What variables are they utilizing? And realize that this is not an absolute prediction. It's, it's a helpful source to provide guidance. Yeah. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's very true. Um, and so what about the bio-preparedness? Um, firstly, if you could actually maybe just explain what that term means, bio-preparedness, and then what that looks like, as I said, for private and nationally funded healthcare systems. Yeah, so bio-preparedness is really, I mean, preparing for biological events. So, um, you know, if we look at like biodefense, that's the security context of microbial threats. So we know that an outbreak, as we're seeing right now, can be, devastating and we you know whether that's economically socially you know lives lost all of this so preparing for that and you know i i call it bio preparedness means that we are working to not only identify a potential outbreak and rapidly respond to it but that we have the capabilities to help contain it as much as possible so there's a whole range of things that we do whether that means you're constantly doing better surveillance and um, testing capabilities, drug development, you know, there's so many aspects to this. And unfortunately, though, um, you know, preparing a healthcare system can be extremely challenging. And it's very, very challenging if you're looking at a nationally funded healthcare system like NHS or private, like what we see in the US. So nationally funded is a little bit easier to ensure widespread mandates, because, you know, you can ensure that to a certain level you have a sweeping standardized approach right it's not yeah. easy um but you can you you can ensure at least that everybody has the information and it's standardized yeah um you know validating that can be a little bit more challenging <laughs> um <laughs> but unfortunately in the us we have predominantly private healthcare which means i if i want them to be prepared for a biological event like a pandemic mm -hmm. how do i do that if it's a private business how do you force the private business to do that so that means you see 
variable levels of preparedness across the U.S. and hospitals. Some because we're reliant on them to decide to prioritize it. Right. right. You know, I, right. I can I can only force so much. And there are some regulatory requirements, but none of them are related to infectious disease preparedness. Oh, so yeah, it kind of lets basically the hospital in some ways decide what they view is, as a threat. And while, you know, you have to have some policies on how to respond to a pandemic, we all know that policy doesn't necessarily mean practice, right? right. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of variability and I think that's a huge challenge. So b basically what I'm saying is it's very hard, no matter if you are a private or a nationally funded healthcare system, to ensure biopreparedness. But I find it especially challenging in private because um, you have to convince them to prioritize it. Yeah, and that's the that's the biggest challenge. And actually, um, leads me on to my next point, which is you know all the focus now, focus and resources globally are being challenged, uh, channeled. Sorry, to COVID nineteen cases or related cases. Um, but, you know, what would be the impact to other conditions? And and this actually, I actually, you know, as somebody who I'm not a virologist, um, I've never, you know, other than just a general interest, I guess, in pandemics to some extent, never, you know, <laughs> considered it or anything. But yes, I have got my research interest in infection. So maybe I had a different take. But I came across this very interesting tweet, which I'm going to share in the episode description, which was talking about, you know, if you're what the increasing focal point of a pandemic and what that impl the implication would be like to other um, health conditions. So yeah, I just wanted to get your thoughts on what this impact of COVID-19 would have on other conditions. I mean, we've already even mentioned mental health as well. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it definitely has a huge impact. I think we're, we're starting to see that as we reopen for, um, elective surgeries, right? You know, there's okay. those people, I mean, ultimately what, what defines an elective surgery because it, it, and it's very, you know, different in each country, but realistically, you know, if that surgery was important for your health and it got pushed off by a few months, that's impacting for you. But also, you know, we were really discouraging people from going to hospitals unless it was an emergent yeah. situation. So, you know, we will definitely start to see the impact on on non-COVID conditions, mm -hmm. if you will, in terms of people not seeking medical care because they're scared to go to the hospitals to yeah. get COVID um, yeah. or they're, they don't want to overwhelm the healthcare system. So I think we're starting to see that there will definitely be a lot of more research into this to understand, because when you do have a pandemic or anything that stresses a healthcare infrastructure, there are rippling effects to that and what that means for other conditions and whether that is, you know, like heart conditions or people opting to give birth at home because they don't want to go to a hospital. And we know that there is a potential for increased, you know, um, fetal mortality in those situations. You know, obviously, if you don't have the right resources, for sure. But, um, you know, so there's a lot of components to that. And I think we will. I think the mental health implications of the pandemic are going to be quite serious. And I, I think we're all impacted, you know what I mean? So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that this will prompt more global efforts to focus on mental health. I completely 100% agree. I mean, it's been very, what also, I guess one thing that's been good with this experience is that people are actually talking more about mental health and their mm -hmm. own mental health and their needs, like what they need, you know, um, especially, you know, people who 
I know that there's this old argument of introverts and extroverts, but it's more like people who, everybody, but people are like, oh, actually, I, can we FaceTime instead of just a phone call? Because I just, I would just like to oh, see yeah. it. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think it's it's yeah. good that we're getting more around that conversation. But yeah, it's just going to be interesting the long term. Because even, even myself, like, you know, going out, I'm my only purpose to leave, you know, my home is to go food shopping. And then once you realise you can order online, you're like, I'll just stay at home then, <laughs> yeah. yeah really and um, but then you're like oh but if you look at because I have a, a Fitbit and if I look oh my the number of steps that I'm doing at home is what like 750 if that um, <laughs> yeah you know whereas before at work I'd be doing like go just getting out of the house I'll be doing you know 12,000 steps look at me trying to show off but <laughs> <laughs> but you know and, and, and it's like even just that and then just the the physical aspect the the idea that oh actually I'm just going to stay in this space and yeah. not engage with the world it's it's you know it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts everyone definitely and you know I I'm I think the hard part is to um the impact it'll have on our essential workers yes um you know I I am not I don't provide medical care I'm not a healthcare provider so yeah. And I'm already, I already feel some of that kind of PTSD because it's just, yeah. it's so exhaustive and the patients are so sick and you're just working so much. And I think, and the weird part is, you know, everybody's at home, but then you have to leave, you have to go yeah. to work. Yeah. And it's weird kind of coming back because mm. I, you know, I've just increasingly seen in my, in my medical providers, my healthcare workers, and even in myself, just like how burnt out everyone is yeah. and how bizarre this entire situation is and frankly really just mentally and emotionally draining and I think we can all collectively say that yeah <laughs> we're all united in that in that in agreement yeah. in. um so now we've got quite a few listener questions um I'm just gonna go in there's no particular order or grouping uh so the first one is why don't pandemics happen more often that's and that's, I feel like, such an interesting, um, challenging question. I think some that are mild, like 2009's H1N1, you know, pandemics, you know, when just, I think it's important to note that when we classify something as a pandemic, it doesn't translate to severity, right? It just means right. worldwide transmission yes. across multiple continents causing an impact. Um, I think I'm hopeful that we don't see more of them because we have tried to really put out more proactive surveillance and response efforts. I think yeah. there's been a lot of focus on investing in global health security efforts um, and how critical they are, especially in the like last 10 to 15 years, especially really since Ebola in 2014, because we all saw how impacting that was. And that is a disease that is transmitted through bodily fluids, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, honestly, I think that's, it's hard. It's really hard to say. I'm, I'm hopeful that it's because we're doing things right. And not just because we're getting lucky, <laughs> but I don't, I don't really know outside of we are, we're trying to identify things and reinforce critical infrastructure through global health security efforts, like the global health security agenda that really focuses on how, um, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. And some countries just don't have that critical infrastructure yeah. for testing and for, um, you know, supply chain capability and things like that. So unfortunately, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. No, but I think that's it's I mean, no, your answer was perfect because it highlights that, you know, the, the overall thing is we hope it we don't have more you know like we hope that we don't see another pandemic in our lifetime essentially oh for sure I mean yeah. the saying is always not if but when right so mm -hmm. I think so much of that is 
we've just gotten really lucky and we've been able to respond and and catch things earlier on or just that maybe the disease really wasn't as um, infectious or contagious. So um, yeah, I, you know, I think that this will be a particularly telling as we go back, you know, and can look back and have that cap capability of, you know, retrospective analysis to say, okay, so this is how it got so bad and yeah. hopefully learn from that. Yeah, I think also um, just as a, a point, I think what maybe may have freaked people out to some extent was that you know around I think it was November December time I mean it freaked people out in terms of you know pandemics and is this going to happen and the way COVID happened was uh, around November December I believe Netflix had in their explained series they had you know the next pandemic and it was yeah. like yeah. yeah, and I, I actually watched that. And so, you know, that was, it was like, oh, the next pandemic. And then um, Bill Gates was there talking and, you know, giving insight as to how it would all come together and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I think shortly afterwards, they actually even had a whole, uh, I think, six part series about preparing for a pandemic. And then we mm -hmm. enter 2020. And then it's like, so guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I you know, and I think that's so so interesting and so telling because so much of that series really focused on how vulnerable we are. Yes. So yeah. I think that really goes into the notion of identifying those vulnerabilities and the efforts we've put in to help fix them, but ultimately that we've just been really lucky. <laughs> yes, no, it's true. Um, and so, okay, so the next question is, why are the effects of COVID-19, why were they, oh, sorry, start that again why were the effects of COVID-19 greater in Italy compared to other countries and the the sub question to that which I'm not sure is really a nice way to put it but why did what did Italy get so wrong and I don't know if that's really a fair comment but I'm just saying I mean <laughs> I you know I think the hard part is Italy really really got hit hard and yeah. you know there are things that we see across many countries that I think we can kind of apply, whether that's delayed in leadership response, you know, that notion of we're not going to close down, we're going to keep life the same. Um, you know, I've, I've read some analysis of Italy's healthcare systems, mm. and I think that definitely was a component to it. They also had a very high rate of elderly people impacted. Right. Right. So I think there's a lot that goes into it. Um, taking effective actions early you know, partial solutions and delays in testing don't really help. You know, you have a very burdened, ill-prepared healthcare infrastructure. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the more I've read about it, the more I see that Italy was quite timid in their response and a, and a bit late. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that I don't want to change my habits can be, um, as you know, as we've seen, very dangerous. So I think, unfortunately, <clears throat> there's a lot of pieces that went into Italy getting hit so hard and, I think we'll probably continue to learn, especially yeah. as we look at other countries. So I'm hesitant to say just, you know, beyond that, that you know, you have delays and, you know, kind of a partial response. You have a healthcare infrastructure that maybe isn't so attuned to responding to something like that. Yeah. And actually leading on from that, um, the other question is, which countries have gotten the management of COVID-19, quote unquote, right? And what does quote unquote, right mean? <laughs> yeah, a, well... Oh, that's a loaded question too. I mean, yeah. I think we're all struggling, right? Some, right. Of us, some of us are just doing it more than others. And I think we can take some lessons from others that we're seeing, you know, the mass testing capability and availability in South Korea, 
has been really, really mm -hmm. inspiring. Um, yes. Nicaragua has done some cool work with social communication and public information efforts. Mm. Um, you know, like even Singapore really invested in pandemic response. And, you know, I, I think the truth is that no country is doing this right. We right. are all in varying levels of success and failure. So I think it's important to acknowledge that we all can do better. We all should do better. And some are doing better in some arenas and how, you know, especially if we look at South Korea, how they're handling that mass testing is yeah. so, so fascinating. But again, is that really comparable for a larger country? You know, those, right. those efforts. So um, yeah. I'm hesitant to say who's doing it right. Cause we're all struggling. Mm. I think some of us are just um, doing, doing better in certain areas than others. Yeah, no, that's, um, I know that's a fair point. Sorry. But well, and unfortunately, some of those areas are a little bit more impacting. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's the hard part is like, if we look just at testing, the U.S. has, I think, only tested like two, between two and three percent of the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, so but so if you look at that piece and then you look at like South Korea, who's tested yeah. like everybody um, mm. and continues to have widespread testing capabilities, you see that impact and how it it really can um, help either fuel or you know slow transmission. Yes, no, that's very interesting. Um, okay, what measures should the government? Uh, there wasn't a, a specific country, but as you said, the government put in place. Oh, look at me! It's the NHS. So it's the UK. <laughs> what measures <laughs> should the government put in place to ensure the NHS can handle any future pandemic? So there's a couple of pieces. I think continued investment in public health, right. laboratory capacity, healthcare preparedness, and public education efforts on pandemics and disease transmission are huge. And I throw that last piece in because, you know, we focus a lot when it comes on pandemic response to public health, lab, and healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. Those are hugely important. Yeah. But a huge piece to this is how the public responds to it and yeah. how supportive they are, too, because you, you know, even if we look at a leadership role, mm -hmm. the thing is, you know, um, change things by your vote, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, you, and I would think we, we all want to respond to a pandemic better in the future. <laughs> Hopefully we don't see another one. But I also <laughs> tell people, you know, we should be educating the general public on basics and disease transmission, how mm -hmm. they can protect themselves, um, yeah. how to, appropriately find information you know yeah. don't don't look to facebook go to the nhs facebook. website or the cdc or the who those kinds of pieces but then also if you don't like what's going on and how your country is responding to infectious diseases or investing in public health then do something with your vote too mm. so all of those pieces i think are important and in general we need to be viewing public health laboratory and healthcare response as not an investment that wavers with our, you know, our interests in it or whatever outbreak we're dealing with, it should be a continued non-negotiable thing, right? Kind of like right. investing in the military um, yeah. and defense, you know, that's why it's it's so, so important. So I'm hopeful that because all of us have been impacted this by this, you know, a pandemic, it really touches everywhere that we will all demand better investments in these response mechanisms that could have changed how COVID-19 hit and hopefully more global efforts too, like the global health security agenda, because we know that if, if a country doesn't have the resources to quickly identify, isolate, and inform, mm -hmm. then it's going to hit all of us. So yeah. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that all of those pieces will come in, but that's realistically what we should all be doing. Yeah. 
And and even when you talked about the collaborative efforts um, and public response, I think getting and this this is something I think we'll be see, hopefully seeing more of is getting behavioural scientists more involved in um, health related, you know, like some, such as you know pandemic or infections, yeah. just, just to try and help shape. Uh, not just the public's understanding, but even how can we make sure that these things that we're suggesting are implemented? And I think, you know, when after everything is, you know, everything, everything is calm and, and so forth, it would be really good if they do get, you know, behavioral sciences involved to make sure that these strategies that we want to implement to improve things moving forward can actually will be, you know, people will stick to them. Because I think that's the part of the problem, right? That, you know, there's mm -hmm. strategies that are suggested or things that are suggested, but the implementation and sticking to it is not always there. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm, I'm also really hoping that this inspires a whole new generation of people to go into public health and yes. healthcare and lab yeah. and everything. Yes. Definitely. So. I mean, there's so, I mean, you, one of the nice things is, is when you were talking about the need for PPE and um, hand sanitizer and you see you know um, <clears throat> many lovely stories in the news of like young I mean like there was something that somebody sent me it was I think on CNN or BBC and a young girl you know she her parents got her a 3D printer she was printing at home making masks for people and you know I think that has been it's been quite nice to see how especially young people have been getting very interested in how can they help and what can they do and the innovation from that and just their interest in public health. It's very nice. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, okay, so the last question is, uh, if lockdown is the correct way to combat, or was or is, was, I'm going to say is, the correct way to combat, <laughs> we, yeah, I don't know, past tense, present, <laughs> it's a <laughs> I'll start there again. So if lockdown is the correct way to combat COVID-19, with hindsight, when should countries have enforced a lockdown? So it's tough. I mean, I hate the term lockdown because I feel like it sounds so negative. I really yeah. like, I prefer stay-at-home orders or you know, oh, stay-at-home. Nice. Yeah, stay because um, <laughs> I just feel like that sounds so negative. You know, quarantine, if we're looking at like a larger scale, what happened in Wuhan, quarantine efforts are very, very challenging. So if you're gonna be doing widespread quarantine, which is much more severe, I think, than just asking people to stay home, it has to hit a lot of metrics for it to be successful. And, um, you know, without going too much into detail, I think the hard part about the stay-at-home orders in place is that they are really effective because whether you are a susceptible person or someone who has COVID, if you go out and about, you put yourself and other people at risk. Right. So having those orders to stay at home is helpful in reducing exposures and transmission, but only as much as people follow them. Yeah. So I think we're starting to see, especially in the U.S., as things reopen, people are just flocking to <laughs> these newly opened businesses, which tells me that they don't understand how, yeah. how dangerous this, you know, this situation can be because they are just you know, I, I get it. None of us want to stay home. Trust me. Like, I, and I think that's the thing people don't realize is even those of us who work in pandemic response, we don't like this any more than anybody else. We, we want life to go back to normal, but yeah. having, I would rather, um, I would rather have stay at home orders for a little bit longer to ensure that we have a much slower phased out approach so mm -hmm. that when things do reopen, you know, if people do rush out, hopefully that will be less impacting. But the truth is, if 
if you start to reopen things and everybody just flocks to them and creates new spikes, we're going to be back in that same situation. Exactly. So it's, it's really hard to say when those will be over, but if we keep making the same mistakes, it's going to take longer. I completely agree. Um, so that's it, actually. We've come to the end of um, the questions. Um, I, I think what I would like to ask is if you have I mean, any key take-home messages that you would, you know, from everything we've talked about, what would be like your key take-home messages? Oh, um, you know, I think it's, it's so hard. I think everybody is so frustrated and tired <laughs> and, you know, everybody is just over COVID-19, right? We all are really <clears throat> just wanting life to go back to normal. But the truth is that life may not go back to normal the way that we think it should. And I really encourage people to be mindful that this is going to be a slow process because we need to do it right. Yeah. And if we rush it, we run the risk of making things worse. Mm -hmm. And that's the last thing we want to do. So be gentle with each other. Um, you know, be kind because we're all in a new situation, one that is extremely stressful, emotionally, mentally, physical, yes. physically. And I just encourage people that as things do reopen, please be kind with each other. You know, businesses are trying to get back to business so that they yeah. can pay their workers, but they're also trying to go about things that they've never had to do. You know, they've never had to wear masks and clean everything, you know, like crazy be between each customer and use paper menus um, <laughs> instead of, you know, all those kinds of weird variances. Mm -hmm. So be gentle with them, um, encourage people to do the right thing, like, you know, wearing their mask appropriately or cleaning their hands and, you know, do your part in it because we all have a really big role. It may not seem like it, but staying home as much as you can and, you know, taking care of yourself, your mental health, your physical health is also really important. So I do encourage people, you know, go, go outside, go for a walk, go for a jog, go do yoga in the park or whatever. Um, but also just recognize that we're all in this together. So being gentle with each other in terms of, you know, don't get mad if you see someone not wearing a mask, you don't know why they're not doing that. Um, yeah. and, and hopefully as things calm down, if we all play our part and we all, you know, can help flatten that curve, make sure in the future that we prioritize public health and healthcare. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, so catch up with you next week. Bye.